0: Part Two, Chapter Ten, of True Stories from History and Biography, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Now that grandfather had fought through the old French War, in which our chair made no very distinguished figure. He thought it high time to tell the children some of the more private history of that praiseworthy old piece of furniture. In 1757, said Grandfather, after Shirley had been summoned to England, Thomas Pownall was appointed governor of Massachusetts. He was a gay and fashionable English gentleman, who had spent much of his life in London, but had a considerable acquaintance with America. The new governor appears to have taken no active part in the war that was going on, although at one period he talked of marching against the enemy at the head of his company of cadets, but on the whole he probably concluded that it was more befitting a governor to remain quietly in our chair reading the newspapers and official documents. Did the people like Pownall? asked Charlie. "'They found no fault with him,' replied Governor. "'It was no time to quarrel with the Governor "'when the utmost harmony was required "'in order to defend the country against the French. "'But Powell did not remain long in Massachusetts. "'In 1759 he was sent to be Governor of South Carolina.' In thus exchanging one government for another, I suppose he felt no regret, except at the necessity of leaving Grandfather's chair behind him. He might have taken it to South Carolina, observed Clara. It appears to me, said Lawrence, giving rein to his fancy, that the fate of this ancient chair— was somehow or other mysteriously connected with the fortunes of old Massachusetts. If Governor Pownall had put it aboard the vessel in which he sailed for South Carolina, she would probably have lain windbound in Boston Harbor. It was ordained that the chair should not be taken away. Don't you think so, Grandfather?' IT WAS KEPT HERE FOR GRANDFATHER AND ME TO SIT IN TOGETHER, SAID LITTLE ALICE, AND FOR GRANDFATHER TO TELL STORIES ABOUT. AND GRANDFATHER IS VERY GLAD OF SUCH A COMPANION, AND SUCH A THEME, SAID THE OLD GENTLEMAN WITH A SMILE. WELL, LAWRENCE, IF OUR OAKEN CHAIR, LIKE THE WOODEN PALLADIUM OF TROY, WAS CONNECTED WITH THE COUNTRY'S FATE, yet there appears to have been no supernatural obstacle to its removal from the province house. In 1760, Sir Francis Bernard, who had been the governor of New Jersey, was appointed to the same office in Massachusetts. He looked at the old chair and thought it quite too shabby to keep company with a new set of mahogany chairs and an aristocratic sofa which had just arrived from London. He therefore ordered it to be put away in the garret. The children were loud in their exclamations against this irreverent conduct of Sir Francis Bernard, but Grandfather defended him as well as he could he observed that it was then thirty years since the chair had been beautified by governor belcher most of the gilding was worn off by the frequent scourings which it had undergone beneath the hands of a black slave the damask cushion once so splendid was now squeezed out of all shape and absolutely in tatters so many were the ponderous gentlemen who had deposited their weight upon it during these thirty years. Moreover, at a council held by the Earl of Loudon with the governors of New England in 1757, his lordship, in a moment of passion, had kicked over the chair with his military boot. By this unprovoked and unjustifiable act— OUR VENERABLE FRIEND HAD SUFFERED A FRACTURE OF ONE OF ITS RUNGS. BUT, SAID GRANDFATHER, OUR CHAIR, AFTER ALL, WAS NOT DESTINED TO SPEND THE REMAINDER OF ITS DAYS IN THE INGLORIOUS OBSCURITY OF A garret." THOMAS HUTCHINSON, LIEUTENANT GOVERNOR OF THE PROVINCE, WAS TOLD OF SIR FRANCIS BERNARD'S DESIGN. This gentleman was more familiar with the history of New England than any other man alive. He knew all the adventures and vicissitudes through which the old chair had passed, and could have told as accurately as your own grandfather who were the personages that had occupied it. Often, while visiting at the province house, he had eyed the chair with admiration and felt a longing desire to become the possessor of it. He now waited upon Sir Francis Bernard, and easily obtained leave to carry it home. And I hope, said Clara, he had it varnished and gilded anew. No, answered Grandfather. What Mr. Hutchinson desired was to restore the chair as much as possible to its original aspect, such as it had appeared when it was first made out of the earl of lincoln's oak tree for this purpose he ordered it to be well scoured with soap and sand and polished with wax and then provided it with a substantial leather cushion when all was completed to his mind he sat down in the old chair and began to write his history of massachusetts oh that was a bright thought in mr hutchinson exclaimed lawrence and no doubt the dim fingers of the former possessors of the chair flitted around him as he wrote and inspired him with a knowledge of all that they had once done and suffered while on earth why my dear lawrence replied grandfather smiling if mr hutchinson was favoured with any such extraordinary inspiration he made but poor use of it in his history for a duller piece of composition never came from any man's pen. However, he was accurate, at least, though far from possessing the brilliance or philosophy of Mr. Bancroft. But if Hutchinson knew the history of the chair, rejoined Lawrence, his heart must have been stirred by it. "'It must, indeed,' said Grandfather." it would be entertaining and instructive at the present day to imagine what were mr hutchinson's thoughts as he looked back upon the long vista of events with which this chair was so remarkably connected and grandfather allowed his fancy to shape out an image of lieutenant governor hutchinson sitting in an evening reverie by his fireside and meditating on the changes that had slowly passed around the chair. A devoted monarchist, Hutchinson would heave no sigh for the subversion of the original republican government, the purest that the world had seen, with which the colony began its existence while reverencing the grim and stern old puritans as the founders of his native land he would not wish to recall them from their graves nor to awaken again that king resisting spirit which he imagined to be laid asleep with them for ever winthrop dudley bellingham endicott leverett and bradstreet all these had had their day. Ages might come and go, but never again would the people's suffrage place a Republican governor in their ancient chair of state. Coming down to the epoch of the second charter, Hutchinson thought, of the ship-carpenter Phipps springing from the lowest of the people and attaining to the loftiest station in the land but he smiled to perceive that this governor's example would awaken no turbulent ambition in the lower orders for it was a king's gracious boon alone that had made the ship-carpenter a ruler hutchinson rejoiced to mark the gradual growth of an aristocratic class to whom the common people as in duty bound were learning humbly to resign the honours emoluments and authority of state he saw or else deceived himself that throughout this epoch the people's disposition to self-government had been growing weaker through long disuse, and now existed only as a faint traditionary feeling. The lieutenant governor's reverie had now come down to the period at which he himself was sitting in the historic chair. He endeavored to throw his glance forward over the coming years. There, probably, he saw visions of hereditary rank. FOR HIMSELF AND OTHER ARISTOCRATIC COLONISTS. HE SAW THE fertile FIELDS OF NEW ENGLAND PORTIONED OUT AMONG A FEW GREAT LANDHOLDERS, AND DESCENDING BY ENTAIL FROM GENERATION TO GENERATION. HE SAW THE PEOPLE, A RACE OF TENANTRY, DEPENDENT ON THEIR LORDS. HE SAW STARS, GARTERS, CORONETS, AND CASTLES but added grandfather turning to lawrence the lieutenant governor's castles were built nowhere but among the red embers of the fire before which he was sitting and just as he had constructed a baronial residence for himself and his posterity the fire rolled down upon the hearth and crumbled it to ashes grandfather now looked at his watch which hung within a beautiful little ebony temple supported by four ionic columns he then laid his hand on the golden locks of little alice whose head had sunk down upon the arm of our illustrious chair to bed to bed dear child said he grandfather has put you to sleep already by his stories about these famous old people End of Part 2 Chapter 10